For thousands of years, people all over planet have wondered about the nature of things in the world. They've thought about what it means to be a human being and ultimately what significance that being human has in the, in the scheme of things. And all cultures develop stories and, and mythologies that attempt to provide frameworks for processing those kinds of questions. But one observation that's common within all of these cultural frameworks is that things are not quite right. There's always something wrong out there. There is a problem that needs to be solved. There are, are famines and there are diseases. There are, are powerful enemies who are, who are seeking our destruction. There are foreign invaders who would like to come in and take control. There are just the regular violations that humans have against other humans within each society. And of course, there is that, that ultimate, unstoppable, seemingly unsolvable problem that we call death. So most people, no matter where you go on the planet Earth, would agree that there is this problem with our shared existence. It's as though we all know very deep within ourselves that things are not as they should be. In fact, we have a sense that there actually is a should be out there somewhere. So within us, we, we think that there's got to be something better than, than what we see around us. But the question is, is there any remedy to this situation? Is there a solution to the problem that we all face? You know, Jesus' friends would have had their own lens for, for how they saw the world. As Jews, they would have framed their humanity clearly within the, the story of God and God's people. They, there would have been no question about whether or not God's people were significant in the scheme of things. They would understand themselves to be the descendants of that great father, Abram, soon to be called Abraham, and that their meaning on planet Earth was important to God and to the world. Um, but still, they faced a big problem. Uh, Israel was under the domination of foreign invaders, had been for a very long time. The nation itself was not unified. There was fracturing within the nation. This was not the way things were supposed to be. But after their time with Jesus, these, these three incredible years of listening to him, watching the amazing things he did, even, even participating in what he was doing, ultimately seeing him arrested, seeing him suffer, seeing him die on the cross, and then experiencing his resurrection presence, uh, these people would have had a fairly clear idea about what the solution was to the problems of the world. The solution was found in Jesus, the one who embodied within himself all that Israel was ever intended to be. And as a result of all that God had done in and through Jesus, the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Jesus' friends, and their lives took on new direction, new purpose, and their distinctively Jewish story found fulfillment in the person of Jesus. However, their story remained distinctively Jewish. Now, if you think about it, it should remain that way, really. 
all the main players, for the most part, were Jewish. Jesus was clearly Jewish. Uh, the drama took place in Israel, a lot of it right there in Jerusalem. It made perfect sense that if other people wanted to get into this deal with Jesus, this new Jesus movement, then either they were already Jewish or they would be willing to become Jewish proselytes. It just made sense. It made sense, that is, until some non-Jewish people started knocking on Peter's door. And so the story that we heard this morning, it actually begins with this bizarre vision that Peter had of these ritually unclean animals being lowered down in a kind of sheet, and then Peter is commanded to get up, go over, kill these animals, and eat them. That was scandalous enough for Peter. I mean, good Jewish guy, he's not going to eat this stuff. These are ritually unclean animals. And so Peter, having heard this command, resists. He's offended by it even, scandalized by what he's been asked to do. And he puts on a kind of religious game face, and, and he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I've never done that kind of thing. I've played by the rules. But then he's told three times not to disparage what God has made clean. Very odd, very mysterious vision. But when these three Gentile men come knocking at the door, and they come to fetch Peter, claiming that their leader, this Roman centurion, a man named Cornelius, has had a pretty significant vision of his own, Peter starts connecting the dots and very rightly suspects that something indeed is up. I think it's difficult for us to really uh, appreciate the tension in this scene. Uh, what Peter felt at this point is something that we have to really scratch our heads over and think deeply about. Uh, it's true that the Gentiles were a kind of religious problem for Peter. Uh, they were considered to be unclean. If a Jew acted like a Gentile, then the Jew was not considered faithful, was considered to be unclean in that Jew's actions. Even associated dining with Gentiles was an act of uncleanness. In some ways, the Gentiles themselves were just, they just had uncleanness built into their DNA, I guess. But the Gentiles were really much more than just a religious problem. Uh, they were also a political and military problem. The Romans had, had desecrated the Jewish temple. They brought violent retribution against anyone who resisted them. It, it was the, the power of the Gentile overlords that had authorized and enacted the crucifixion of Jesus. So these Roman Gentiles were not a problem they were the problem, and they were an unclean one at that. And now, here they are, and they're knocking on Peter's door. It appears that the combination of visions provided Peter with sufficient motivation to run the risk of becoming ritually unclean by cooperating with his visitors and then heading down the road to meet with this Roman centurion and whoever he had gathered. And as it turns out, these Gentiles were, were very likely what would have been known as God-fearers. They were ones who had at least a strong interest in Israel's God, perhaps were even worshipers, uh, although they would do so at a distance. Even if they'd gone into Jerusalem, they couldn't quite connect. Special court set up for them. But now, regardless of their orientation, they want to hear from Peter. 
So Peter tells the story of Jesus. And as he's probably in mid-sermon, the whole place just explodes. Uh, These people start acting up. Uh, Nothing is decent and in order in this room. Uh, They begin to praise God, evidently loudly. They are speaking in tongues, according to Peter. And it gives evidence to Peter that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on these Gentiles, these ritually unclean Gentiles, in, in a way that paralleled his own experience on the day of Pentecost with his friends. And it was poured out on the Gentiles without them abandoning their ethnic and religious uncleanness. Well, this was a big deal for everyone involved in the story, including Peter's friends back home in Jerusalem who caught wind of this and were not real happy about it. But upon hearing the story as Peter relayed it, they changed their minds, at least at that moment. And we're told that they rejoiced. They rejoiced in God's generosity and they realized that the story in which they lived was much bigger than they'd ever imagined. Yeah, there were still problems in the world. But the work of God that Peter was experiencing went way beyond religious correctness. It was a work that was binding the hearts of the people to God and also binding them to one another. It was a work that was creating a new brand of community, one that was formed by the presence and power of God's Spirit rather than by social or ethnic or religious categories. It appeared that the solution to the problem of the world would be expressed and demonstrated in and through this new kind of community. You know, right now, at this very moment, we are living in the best of seasons and the worst of seasons. It's the best of seasons because it's Eastertide, right? It's a great season, and and we continue to celebrate and, and marvel at what God has done in the resurrection of Jesus. It's like our best time of the year. But it's also the worst of seasons, because it's the time when the presidential candidates are jockeying for position. And while this year we seem to be observing a lot more drama than we usually see, It's really typical for us that our candidates, when this season rolls around, to make claims about how they have have the solutions to all of our problems. And and most of us get it. Most of us understand how this political game is played, and and we don't really believe that any one person has a special bag of tricks that's going to fix everything, that that person has the solutions to all of our problems, and more importantly, that no one person is the solution to all of our problems. We get that. And this year, of course, we're hearing all sorts of claims from all kinds of different people that are grounded in fear and anger and divisiveness, resulting in proposed solutions that are generated by power and the promise to restore things the way everybody or at least some people want them to be. But you know, no matter the promises made, such solutions cannot be the way for us. For, for you and for me. They, they can't be our solutions. 
Nations will make decisions all the time that appear to serve the interest of the nation. Pick your nation. That's how they do business. But those decisions, while they're not unimportant and they're not insignificant, are insufficient for we who are followers of Jesus because we are fundamentally bound to one another and to others by the Spirit of God and not by the Spirit of anything else, be it a a nation, a philosophy, a category of isolation. That's insufficient for us. And so new leaders might enact legislation, social projects to serve the perceived interests of a nation, but those things do not provide us, you and me, with an adequate framework for participating in the work of God. No matter what happens, we are still called, just as Peter was called, to extend hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, we just might be entertaining angels without knowing it. You and I are called not only to love neighbor, but to love enemy and to pray for those who persecute us. And we're called to live in an economy of love which is not scarce. It's always abundant because it's the love that comes from God. You know, I wonder what Peter left his Gentile friends with when he departed from them, went back to Jerusalem to explain his methods. I mean, certainly he taught them about Jesus. We can infer that from the text. But wouldn't he also have left them with a new level of encouragement as a a people who had been embraced by God's love and overwhelmed by his spirit? I mean, was that like a church? And if so, who was the pastor? How'd they work that one out, you know? But Peter would have at least given him, I think, the gift of Jesus' words when he said, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it wouldn't be through religious respectability or ethnicity, or socioeconomic status, or national allegiance, or political preference, that the world would know that they were now Jesus' disciples. It would be through love. And that love would, first of all, be observable in this new emerging Christian community. As I've read the story of Peter and his new Gentile friends over the years, one of my favorite stories in the, in the New Testament I've often wondered what it must have been like for Peter, really, you know, standing on the, on the threshold of Cornelius's house. Uh, it's one thing to travel with two or three Gentile guys. At least you've got the fresh air to sort of wash them off of you. Uh, now he's standing on the threshold and he's looking at all these Gentile faces, unclean Gentile faces, staring at him with big eyes, waiting for him to bring whatever it is that he's going to bring. One step through that door... And Peter's got enough Gentile uncleanness on him to last a lifetime. What would be the equivalent experience for us, I've wondered? You know, to get us to kind of connect with this story, maybe it would be receiving an invitation from a local mosque 
They've heard about you and your faith, and there's a group of Turkish immigrants who have just come into town, and, and they'd like to hear from you. Or, or maybe there's some visiting Tibetan monks, and uh, they know of your fame, and uh, you've been invited to come and speak to them about this faith that energizes your life because they're curious about it. And so you do. You go to one of these places, and, and when you first arrive, there's this sense of utter foreignness because these are not your people. These are not the right people. Clearly, they're not the spiritually qualified people if there is such a thing. But something happens as you speak to them about Jesus. Everything in the room changes, and they begin to praise God loudly in all kinds of voices and all kinds of languages. And all that was foreign, all that was clearly other, changes. And it becomes familiar. It becomes binding in relationship. All of your old categories are shaken, and something brand new takes place. The very Spirit of God has invaded not only the space that you inhabit, but also the lives that you see before you. It's no longer you and them. It's now one another. Oh, maybe that's what it was like for Peter on that particular day. In that moment, a fresh demonstration of the kingdom of God emerged. The prayer of the psalmist that all the families of the nations shall worship before him would find this, this spark of fulfillment as God's intentions for the world would be glimpsed by Peter. And in the background, almost like a, a rising musical score in a movie, we can hear God's voice speaking, see, I am making all things new. You know, it's interesting when Peter sees the vision of the unclean animals as they were lowered down before him, he's ordered to kill and eat. The order comes without any qualification. It comes without prerequisite. He's not told to kill and eat just as long as he uses a special seasoning before he gets down to business or a particular brand of barbecue sauce or make sure he's got the temperature in the oven turned up to a certain level before he eats because you have to enact some kind of change to this food before you consume it. No, it appears that something has already happened, that God has already done something, and Peter is cautioned not to call profane what God has already made clean. And so when Peter meets these so-called unclean Gentiles at the home of Cornelius, he makes an observation. And he says, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does right is acceptable to him. I don't know that we can quite grasp the, the shift in categorical thinking that would have been there for Peter, that, wait a second, what I've just observed deconstructs everything I've thought about, it, what it takes to be qualified before God. God has shaken those qualifications and broken them down. You know, in the resurrection of Jesus, we realize that God has completely destroyed the power of sin and death to have the last word. And we also realize that Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God making all things new. It's kind of a deposit on which that, where, that will be fulfilled sometime in the future.
This death-to-life reality precedes us. It comes before us just as God's forgiving love preceded the Gentiles that Peter met in Antioch. And so we now see that God's love for the world is more expansive and generous than we have ever imagined. And we are called to enact that love as God's ambassadors in the world. The life that we share in the present reality of God's kingdom is a life of both proclamation and demonstration. I mean, certainly we hope that people will respond to what we do, that they will indeed hear this story, see this story, respond to it with their lives, turn their lives to God. Have they experienced and the life-changing time that the Gentiles in Antioch had? But whether people do or not, we still proclaim and demonstrate the real presence of God's kingdom. We proclaim to all that God's kingdom has come, that it is a present reality, and that he is calling all people to turn to that life-giving reality. And we also demonstrate the presence of God's kingdom through love, love for the God who first loved us, love for one another in the family of faith, and love for the others of the world that God is reconciling to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And in that love, we point people to the living God who has raised Jesus from the dead and who's making all things new. As we begin the journey this morning toward sharing the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, it just comes to mind that this uncleanness thing isn't a thing out there somewhere. For many of us, it's a thing right here. It's not God's thing, it's our thing. I have the privilege of teaching seminary students, graduate students, and I'm fully aware of how many of them come with a deep sense of God's call in their life while simultaneously feeling that God does not favor them. We have to help them with that. And they receive the help quite willingly. But if there are any indication, a lot of us struggle with that too. Uh, we're glad that God has forgiven us, but we wonder if it isn't simply out of theological necessity that he does so. Uh, Given the opportunity, perhaps he would choose another path, but he's kind of stuck, you know? And so we have walls. We have walls that have said, I really don't measure up. I have uncleanness. I got lots of voices telling me that, and I've developed it for myself. And my hope for all of us this morning is not so much that we'll see those walls crumble down, but we'll see them evaporate because they're not real. They're not God's deal. Uh, They don't have substance, only in our perception. That God's love for us is generous. It is expansive. And clearly God sees us for who we are. And perhaps the image that will help us this morning is when we get to the point in our time together here today where we come forward, take the elements of the Lord's Supper. And as you'll be guided to come up with hands like this to receive bread, let those hands also symbolize for you a letting go 
of all of the qualifiers that you think you need to have so that God will really like you. Let your hands open, and in doing so, let it go. And recognize that you're not coming to this table because you're qualified. You'll come to this table because you've been invited. And the invitation comes out of the love of God expressed to us in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus who has gone before us. Amen.